Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 26th, 2021. Black Friday in the United States. I'm not sure if it's Black Friday around the world. And blackness, or at least bleakness, seems to be uh, the word to describe the uncertainty of our age, which seems to be summarized on a, uh, a dark, late uh, November Friday. Um, COVID is back, this time supposedly from a variant from South Africa. Lots of halted flights, talks of new travel bans. Um, the EU is talking about actually a formal ban, perhaps from South Africa or five or six countries in the southern part of Africa. Uh, meanwhile, the uncertainty, I think, particularly on Black Friday, has spilt over in terms of consumer attitudes towards large companies. Uh, on Black Friday, uh, protesters are to quote the BBC, hitting Amazon buildings uh, all over the world. A lot of discomfort about the profitability and working conditions in Amazon on Black Friday, the key consumer day of the year. Uh, the markets are tumbling. Um, seems to be a perennial theme of early 20, 21st century capitalism, very unstable markets. Um, and more and more supply issues. So whatever we want to buy on Black Friday, it's not available because of the uncertainty of distribution. So this is generally, I think, a crisis, um, not just today, but broadly for governments, for individuals, and above all else, for, P uh, for companies. We're talking today uh, with two authors of an interesting uh, Harvard Business Review piece uh, that just came out, a new crisis playbook for an uncertain world. Uh, the authors are John E. Katsos and Jason uh, Micklian. And uh, they write in the piece, I'm quoting, uh, today we stand on the precipice of not one, but three converging and potentially catastrophic long-term trends, climate change, globalization, and growing inequality. On their own, each of these makes the occasion the occasional crisis worse. Um, together, though, these trends magnify challenges. Uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, was not just a health crisis, but an economic and political one as well. And I think that's reflected in the headlines today from South Africa. Uh, so let's, uh, let's begin uh, talking to, uh, to John Katsos. Uh, John, the news today out of South Africa is quite disturbing. How does this uh, conform and strengthen your argument in a new crisis playbook for an uncertain world? Yeah, I think it just it reinforces a lot of the things that we've been talking about for quite a while now. Um, a lot of people thought COVID over the summer was over. Um, they thought that it was it had passed and we were sort of at the tail end of, of the broader crisis. But as we've talked about a lot, because of all the converging factors, because of globalization, because of climate change, and because of inequalities, it's just gonna dovetail into the next crisis. So what we're seeing now in things like supply shortages and things like inflation, 
um, is that just one thing can trigger a whole bunch of other sets of problems and it can then spur on those problems in unexpected ways. So we don't expect that uh, even though COVID might again be tailing off or, or might be mutating into something perhaps less deadly, um, it, it, it doesn't really make that much of a difference because it'll tail into the next crisis. So what, John, what, how, how uh, historically unprecedented is this? I lived through the 1970s uh, in the UK, general strikes, power cuts, enormous political instability, the rise of left-wing terrorism. Um, is the crisis that you talk about today at the beginning of the 2020s, is it historically unprecedented, this, this convergence of a health crisis, an economic crisis, um, and of course, an environmental crisis? And, ex and, and all of these in which we use the word existential to underline the significance of these crises. Yeah, I think what's different about them is, is twofold. One is we're no longer really having between crises. There's always been crises, right? So that's not that part is not new. Um, so one of the big differences, I think, is we're seeing more interconnectivity or we're going to see more interconnectivity between crises. So as one ends, the next one picks up right after it. Um, the second big difference is they're no longer really localized. So I think what we saw, uh, especially in the early part of the the twenty the uh, the twenty first century, is that we often would have a single crisis, and then it might spread a little bit regionally, but the knock on effects globally were were more limited. Um, now what we're seeing is even small problems that are localized suddenly become much larger problems, or problems that might have been contained before to one or two countries or to one region now spread much more rapidly and then go off in, in more uncontrolled ways. Let's bring uh, Jason uh, Miklian in. Uh, Jason from the University of Oslo, the co-author of this interesting Harvard Business Review piece, a new crisis playbook for an uncertain world. Um, Jason, your, your, your piece, um, which you authored with John, uh, speaks to the role and responsibility of corporations uh, we'll talk, I'd like to talk a little bit more about government and individuals as well. But in your view, in this uncertain world of, of, of converging crisis, of, uh, of, of environmental and health and political and economic crises, what's the particular responsibility of the modern corporation? Great. And thanks so much for having us on, Andrew. And, uh, and this is a really important question that gets to the key of the, the piece itself. Uh, because, you know, it's very easy to think about crisis management and what companies should do as a response to crisis. But what we saw in companies all over crisis settings, war zone settings, is that it's the preparation before the crisis that matters. And that's what really gets to this key question of, you know, what is corporate social responsibility and what should it be? Uh, this is something that's changed a lot uh, globally, especially over the last 10, 20 years. Uh, to now you have a situation where... Uh, customers want a more socially responsible company. Employers want to work for a more socially responsible company. And the companies themselves say that, you know, you know, they say that they care. They promise to be more socially responsible. So what happens is a lot of companies get themselves into trouble when a crisis hits, uh, either one that affects their company or affects the society at large. And they try to come up with these mealy mouth statements that try to satisfy all people. 
uh, but you know, customers, employers, the general public, we can all see through it now. We're used to those sorts of comments, those sorts of uh, issues. So what we found is that companies that were more uh, direct and more explicit about their values and their roles in society tended to do better uh, working through crisis and were more successful after crisis had passed. Uh, let, let's go back to, um, I'm going to go back to, uh, to your co-author uh, of this piece, John Katsos, who teaches at the American University of Sharjah in the United Arab uh, Emirates. Uh, John, we've had an ongoing debate in this show about the role and responsibility of modern corporations. On the one hand, we have, I guess, optimists like Ronald Cohen, the Anglo-Israeli entrepreneur and investor who believes that companies can become the moral fulcrum of 21st century capitalism. Uh, Rebecca Henderson has also been on the show. Her book, Reimagining Capitalism, like Cohen's new book, places the modern corporation at the heart of this new ethical capitalism. On the other hand, um, we've had a number of guests, two in particular come to mind, Jason Hickel, uh, who has a new book out, a, a UK-based uh, economic theorist, suggesting that the planet needs saving from capitalism, not people. And his critique of capitalism has been um, echoed by many other guests in the show, including one in particular, I think Tim Jackson, who imagines a world after capitalism. I'm assuming, uh, John, that you're in the first camp. You stand with Ronnie Cohen and Rebecca Henderson. You believe that companies can be ethical. But how would you respond to people like Hickel and J Jackson and say, ultimately, companies can throw around lots of uh, moral language, but ultimately their goal is to make money and that they're never going to be moral. Yeah, so I, I think the, the the latter group is based on a lot of real lived experience. Right, So we've seen companies and, and Jason and I in our research have seen companies who talk the talk, but who do not walk the walk, right? So where a lot of it is just PR. We've seen things like peace washing where they'll make like what they're doing is peace promoting, but it's really not. Um, I think our view on uh, on companies in general is that companies are a reflection of the people that are in them. The difference, I think, that we've seen in crisis settings and particularly in, in war zones and the most difficult places is that, yeah, there's a group of companies that are really awful and terrible and are doing bad things, and they're a pretty small percentage. There's a set of companies that are uh, sort of angels and are doing these amazing things but maybe aren't making a whole lot of money. And then there's this very large group in the middle that's run by people who have good intentions, but still want to, you know, make money and survive and, and have a good, um, you know, have a good life. And what we've seen is that those companies in the middle, when they're following a particular kind of playbook, when they're invested in their communities, when they act ethically, and when they take principled political stands, are the ones that are more likely to survive. And so there is a self-interest component to this. Um, there's no doubt about it. I think the challenge is the expectations, as Jason talked about in a second, are shifting. So customer expectations, employee expectations, shareholder expectations are no longer going to allow most companies to survive if they don't really show that they can walk the walk and care about these issues. Let's go back to Jason. Um, Jason, uh, teach at the University of Oslo, one of the few remaining functional governments and states perhaps in the world. People often cite the 
Norwegian or Danish model, but all over the world, governments are in crisis, crisis of legitimacy, crisis of functionality, perhaps like in the United States. Some countries like Lebanon, the government seems to have ceased to exist. To what extent are companies now the central moral compass at a time of the crisis of, of governments and states all around the world? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and one that goes, um, you know, it varies so much from, from country to country, from region to region. Uh, I think that companies would like to think of themselves <laughs> as the moral compass in places. Uh, but, you know, you know, the, just like the question that you asked, John, when we see companies behaving really badly, are the times when even I start to question, like, you know, maybe Milton Friedman was right and business should stick to business. And governments should be the ones that have this you know, moral leadership role. But the challenge, of course, is that governments themselves, as you mentioned, uh, are no better at this than companies. So instead of looking for a particular sector or a particular uh, you know, group of individuals to find a moral compass, uh, you know, we, we as a society tend to know what the moral and ethical things are to do. It's just a matter of how do we convince both businesses and governments uh, that these are the healthiest ways forward. And that's that's the big, big challenge that, that we're still trying to work through ourselves. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to take the few companies that are really trying to do good in this space uh, and not dismiss those efforts as, uh, as, as just peace washing or greenwashing. But we have to figure out exactly which efforts by which companies are the ones that we should actually, uh, that are worth promoting uh, and hold the feet to the fire of those companies that say they're doing good, but really aren't doing much at all. We are talking to Johnny Katsos and Jason Micklian, the author of an interesting new Harvard Business Review piece, a new crisis playbook for an uncertain world, which they lay out a kind of a, a, a series of morals do, moral do and don'ts for corporations in our crisis-ridden world. It's an appropriate day to talk about it on Black Friday. Um, we're going to be back in a second. I want to get more into the details um, uh, of, uh, 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 of the piece and talk a little bit about some of the models of companies uh, for, for, for confronting an uncertain world. So stay with us. We'll be back in a second. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected 
uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We are back uh, with John Katsos and Jason Micklian, the author of A New Crisis Playbook for an Uncertain World, a kind of moral guide, I guess, for companies, corporations in our age of uncertainty, of instability, of this chaos of, of environmental and economic um, crises. Um, let's, um, let, let, let's, uh, let's go back to John. Um, John, let's get into some details of, of the book itself. You have a number of companies in the book which um, are both lessons, I guess, moral lessons of how companies shouldn't should and shouldn't behave. There was an interesting uh, headline today in The Guardian from a, a CEO saying that he was happy to lose 10 million pounds by quitting Facebook, uh, the boss of Lush. And surprise, surprise, Facebook is a company that comes up in your piece. You suggest that they are not great, um, great uh, advocates of, of appropriate moral behavior. What have Facebook been doing wrong? How can they teach us how not to do things, John? Yeah, so we, we the, the work that's in the Harvard Business Review piece is built on uh, some of the work that Jason's done in Myanmar, but then some broader work that we've done um, and published at a global policy. And, and the focus wasn't so much on just what Facebook was doing. In, in that particular case, uh, what we had was uh, Facebook going into a new market, in this case, Myanmar, and trying to capture as much of that market as possible. So they were trying to take advantage of the network effect which allows for you know much broader. All, they want to reap as many users as they possibly can in the network to to take advantage of that. When they were doing that in Myanmar, they were doing it as they do in most markets, irrespective of who was signing up um, or not even necessarily what was being posted and shared. And if, on the investigations that followed up afterwards, um, what was more or less happening is Facebook was being used by. Uh, military and former military members of the Myanmar regime to incite violence against uh, the Rohingya population, and this led to to population dispersals, to refuge to a refugee crisis, to a, what the UN has called a genocide, and a lot of the problems that Facebook had related to things that other companies face as well. But they, a lot of them being blindsided by it was because they're tech companies, and a lot of tech companies have this sense of exceptionalism. They think that it, for whatever reason, that because they've got a technology that it's going to spur democracy and it's going to spread the good word related to, you know, either liberalism or capitalism or democratic values or human rights or fill in the blank of whatever good thing uh, they think they're going to do, all because the technology is being shared. And what they found out and what the world, I think, has found out over the last five to six years is this simply doesn't happen. Um, there's not a one-to-one -one relationship. There, there need to be other things in place and that social media is fundamentally still social. It's still a reflection of the underlying society that's there. So that's something that we saw with Facebook, but we've seen it with, with tech companies generally, that they've been a little bit more blindsided than, say, oil companies, 
um, which have a history of these kinds of problems. So oil companies, when they go into these territories, often know a lot more um, from a due diligence standpoint before they enter into these new markets than tech companies sometimes do. I'm not sure if that means we should um, we should respect oil companies more that they're more experienced in telling lies. Uh, John, um, you know, Facebook is surprise, surprise. Silicon Valley has been very loud in a moral sense. And of course, uh, much of much of the hypocrisy of the language of Silicon Valley has been revealed. Another company that's very morally loud that, that you're not necessarily huge fans of, at least in this piece, is Starbucks, uh, a, a, a morally aggressive company always claiming the moral high ground. But you suggest not always as morally consistent as they should be. Uh, what, what does Starbucks teach us, John? I, I think the the Starbucks case, and this is another one where Jason was doing a lot of on the ground research. Um, it, what it teaches us more than anything is that you can have the best of intentions. And if things are, if you aren't following a particular kind of playbook, you're going to run into a whole host of problems. So in that case, what we saw is they were doing everything they thought was correct, right? They were investing in local communities, they were investing in local farmers, but there was more that had to be done in terms of understanding the local landscape, in particular, understanding these sort of land and rubber mafias that predated their entry into the marketplace. Because they didn't take the time to adequately understand that, they, they ended up having problems that they didn't need to have um, and that they didn't have in other places. So it's even within companies where they're maybe doing the right things in certain locations, if you don't have that deep community embeddedness in each and every location you're in, you can still run into problems, even if you're doing you know, just fine elsewhere. Uh, Jason, um, it's not just American companies and Starbucks and, and Facebook. Uh, I wasn't surprised to read about either, of course, Facebook, but Starbucks always seems a, a little hypocritical to me in them in their noisy moral language. Um, another company that you call out, or at least you suggest, uh, are lessons in not how to to operate morally. Is uh, is this the, is this a Korean company, Posco? Tell me about them and, and, and what you say in in your piece about uh, Posco. Yeah, they're they're one of the world's largest uh, steel manufacturers. Uh, and, you know, just like the Starbucks case, what we really tried to do with this piece is not just pick out the examples of companies that did things that everyone knows were bad. Uh, there is, you know, we, John and I have written a lot about companies like that in the past, but we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into, just like John said, the companies like Starbucks or Posco that thought that they were doing everything correctly and still failed to try to see what kind of lessons we could we could pull out of there. So Posco went into um, an impoverished part of rural India uh, and tried to build a $10 billion um, manufacturing plant uh, and uh, extraction, uh, a whole environment. But the problem was they just went and talked with local officials in India. They didn't talk with the local community. So there were about 5,000 people that needed to be removed from the land that they wanted. So POSCO talked with the local officials. They said, no, 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 it's fine. We'll take care of it. POSCO agreed. And what the local officials did was pocket most of the money that POSCO gave them to resettle the people. And they put them in a de facto concentration camp where they languished for years. Uh, the people tried to reach out to POSCO. Uh, POSCO said, no, 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 this is the, the local government's job. So they refused any sort of communication. So eventually after being in these camps for years, the people who were in there went to a local insurgency rebel group 
uh, that had been fighting for these sorts of issues for almost two decades. And when they did that, it turned into a local conflict where POSCO was then seen as the enemy. So these insurgents would kidnap POSCO uh, executives that came in, and eventually the whole thing collapsed in on itself. POSCO had to write off the entire region. They sold their this, this very promising project for pennies on the dollar, uh, and now they're no longer there, and, and a local company is, uh, is trying to do the same thing. Let's talk about some positive uh, models. So Facebook, Starbucks, POSCO didn't do it right. Uh, but the most interesting I, thing I found from your new crisis playbook for an uncertain world, this latest piece from Harvard Business Review, focuses on companies that are doing it right. Uh, you have the example of uh, it's NBC. It's not the broadcasting company. It's a, a distribution uh, drinks company in, in Palestine. You have the example. Uh, sorry, you have the example of um, of uh, of Chobani. Uh, and you also uh, have the example of Dilma, a, a tea manufacturing company. Um, Jason, perhaps you might address one or two of those, and then we'll, we'll take it back to John to, to finish this section. Sure. And, the, and the really the common, I, I can kind of address all three of them at the same time, because they all ran this sort of similar playbook that, you know, even two, two of those companies didn't even really know that they were doing it at the time. Uh, and that is by listening to the local community and making them true partners in their business success, these companies were able to get through unprecedented uh, sociopolitical crisis uh, just by recognizing that if they failed, the community failed, and if the community failed, they failed. Uh, so now this is, you know, it's, it's a simple blueprint, but it's really hard work because you have to trust in the community when you're working through these sorts of issues uh, and then give them a voice. And that's the thing that many companies are most scared of because they very often want to control the process. They don't want to give a local community the same voice in their decision-making that they might want to have. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, Chobani. Everybody knows Chobani as a, as a, as a yogurt company, not a, not a moral company, although they've been, they're in and out of the news, Chobani. What, what did they do in, in an interesting way, uh, Jason? Yeah, so they, you know, they, they actually started the company, it was founded by a refugee uh, who built in this notion of social good within the company itself from the beginning. Uh, and as you say, it wasn't necessarily, you know, Chobani wasn't pitched as this social good yogurt company, it was just a company that had great yogurt. Um, but when Donald Trump took office, a lot of the things that Chobani stood for uh, were actually in direct opposition to the sorts of things that Trump and his supporters enjoyed. So they were left with a really difficult decision. Do they try to thread the needle or walk this tightrope of trying to talk about their social good only with uh, people on the left and not talk about it on the right? Or do they double down and actually show, no, these are actually things that are important. Uh, and they asked, uh, implicitly asked conservatives, I'm still gonna support these issues, but I still want you to buy my yogurt. Uh, and this was a really innovative and groundbreaking way that a company would go to customers and say, look, we disagree politically, but I still want your business. Uh, and this was something that saw Chobani through the Donald Trump years, uh, and it grew the company by some three, 400% uh, in just a few years because they, you know, they gained a lot of uh, customers on the left, but they didn't lose so many on the right because they were vocal and clear about what they stood for. Let's uh, let's go back to uh, to John. Um, 
talk. Uh, John, I know you're based uh, in the United Arab uh, Emirates. Uh, what about this Palestinian distribution, drinks distribution company? They distribute Coca-Cola and Fanta and Sprite uh, based in Palestine. Tell me a little bit briefly about their story and why they're another model for corporate moral responsibility in, a, in an uncertain age. Yeah, so the story of NBC is really the story of a man named Zahi Khoury, who's their um, their CEO and their founder, and there their, was their principal investor initially. And he really had a pretty varied career and a very successful career as an investment banker, as a marketing executive, just doing a whole bunch of different things. But all throughout his career, he was the community guy. So he was the one negotiating with unions in Brazil. He was, he was negotiating with uh, uh, worker strikes and all these sort of things. And he, he's a Palestinian by origin, but had basically lived his entire working life outside of the, the territories. And so after the Oslo Peace Accords, he talked to his contacts at Coca-Cola and gotten this distribution deal because Coca-Cola had been in Israel, um, but hadn't been in Palestine. And so uh, among Palestinians, Coca-Cola had a much worse reputation than Pepsi. Um, so Pepsi's been in the region more or less since the beginning. And one of the ways it was able to do so was by going to one side and not the other um, after the 70s. So what he decided to do was bring Coca-Cola to Palestinians. That's, that was the goal. Um, and it, it looked like it was going to fall apart really quickly uh, because the Oslo Peace Accords didn't last particularly long. And just as he was starting to set up, the really worst of the first um, intifada violence started up. But what he was able to do is because of his great international contacts, he was, and because of Coca-Cola's pre-existing relationships in Israel, he was able to have a great set of connections and contacts with community leaders on both sides. So he wasn't just focused on Palestinians. He wasn't just focused on Israelis in his conversations. He was able as a result to get all these things in um, to places where all sorts of other companies, even the UN and international aid organizations were having trouble getting things in. He's able to bring stuff in sometimes on the backs of you know, donkeys and, um, and people carrying them by hand and now is generating $100 million in revenue per year. Uh, you're talking to me from Sharjah, John. Uh, I think that the Middle East or the, the Emirates, um, the, the, the Gulf is going to become increasingly controversial more area, particularly in terms of the Qatar World Cup next year. Um, as I said, you teach at the American University of Sharjah. Both of you are, I guess, moral critics of companies. What do you think the responsibility of academics are when it comes to criticizing not just companies, but governments? Yeah, I mean, I think it comes down to, you know, where you are and staying in your lane to a certain extent. Um, so as a, as a business professor, I, I, I talk about businesses. Um, and so that tends to be my focus. I know that there's other folks who focus on uh, governments and, and regulations that are different. But I think something as a, and particularly as a business law professor that I talk about here, is we talk a lot about things like labor law. Right. So so there's all sorts of, um, you know, there's different laws here. A lot of them mirror what we have um, in the U.S. or the U.K. Um, but it, with labor law, that tends to be the area where we come under the biggest, uh, the UAE and the Gulf sometimes comes under the biggest scrutiny from the outside. And from from my perspective, a lot of what I try to do is to advise um, and to help not just future leaders, but current leaders really understand what the issues are coming in from the outside. And so we've seen, especially in the UAE, some really big progress just in the last couple of years on things like labor law. So we've seen um, just last week, 
a massive new labor law uh, that'll come into effect this February. And a lot of it strips away the things that other Gulf countries have come under fire for. Um, so it allows much freer um, visa relationships. It ensures that passports aren't held. Um, it's, it's sort of a lot of the stuff that, that has been a problem in the past is starting to be solved. So I think from an academic standpoint, especially as a foreigner here, a lot of my job is really to, again, to advise, to teach, to instruct, but also to be a bridge between some of the harshest critics who are outside the country and, and the folks here who are sometimes saying, look, look, this is the system that we have and it's worked for us. So what can we, you know, what are we doing wrong? What can we do better? But also to say, what are the things maybe we, we want to learn from what other countries have done? Let's end with Jason. Um, Jason, uh, yesterday I spoke with a uh, guy, interesting guy, John Alexander for my How to Fix Democracy series. He has a new book coming out, it's called Citizens. Um, in which he suggests, he, he runs New Citizen Project, he suggests that in order to fix our politics, our fix our democracies, we need to think of each other more as citizens than consumers. And he uses the example of Brewdog, a very innovative craft brewing company in the UK, uh, as, as, as rethinking how companies are organized. Are you in the same camp as Alexander when it comes to corporations perhaps offering governments more innovative ways of um, of, of confronting our age of stability of uh, uh, sorry our, our age of instability of uncertainty of, of crisis uh, given the dysfunctionality of governments and the bureaucratic nature of governments? Uh, is it in companies perhaps like the ones you talk about in your in your piece, Chobani, Dilma, um, uh, the, the NBC company in, in Palestine? Can they offer, like BrewDog, a model for revitalizing citizenship in the 21st century? Because that's really what you guys are talking about in your new crisis playbook for an uncertain world. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, without knowing the, the exact specifics of the BrewDog case, I think that, you know, it, it gets back to what we were saying right in the beginning, where we should absolutely encourage companies that have very good intentions, uh, but then, you know, as John said, help teach them a, about what sorts of things actually matter, what, sort of, what sorts of activities actually help build democracy and help build peace uh, in, the, in the most crisis-ridden places. Uh, as opposed to the the sorts of things that are a bit more performative in nature, when you're talking about you know what a company can do, how it can engage with the government, um, these are areas that you know even the most well-intentioned companies they don't necessarily have a lot of experience. So it's very important that they are promoting the right sorts of activities. Uh, and if you're talking about making people citizens rather than consumers, that's great. But what does it actually mean for the company to do that? How does it change how they see their customers because at the end of the day they of course still want to have customers even if they call them citizens uh so it's a you know it's it gets back to that real that, that very initial notion of social responsibility so when a company is working with a government to try to improve or let's say uh solidify democracy in a fragile place uh you know is the company really doing activities that deliver upon that promise uh and if they aren't uh, who is holding their feet to the fire, who is talking with the government, and who is actually controlling the reins of power to make sure that these sorts of things don't turn more dystopian in nature, 
where all of a sudden you have companies running the show and, and becoming, you know, the version of the 21st century version of company towns where, you know, the local population has just swapped out one devil for another. So those are the things that John and I have really tried to work through for the last decade to try to help both companies and governments understand what the actual uh, right things to do are in these spaces. Because at the end of the day, the, the group that matters the most is the local communities that are going to have the biggest impact upon these sorts of initiatives, projects, whatever that the, the companies and governments will try to do. Well, it's a good conversation to have on Black Friday, the right thing to do as opposed to the best deal. Um, and, and, and your piece uh, in the Harvard Business Review, A New Crisis Playbook for an Uncertain World, it's a short read, but it's bracing, and, and, I, and I think it's appropriate. And as I said, uh, next year, with the World Cup being in Qatar, and, 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 and as we have more and more COVID crises, crises of, of the environment, of inequality, I think these kinds of conversations um, are going to be more and more relevant. So thank you so much, uh, John Katsos from the American University of Sharjah and Jason Micklin from uh, the University of Oslo. Great stuff, guys. Continue thinking morally about capitalism. We need people like you kind of standing in the center, neither cheerleaders for capitalism nor, nor ra radical critics. I think probably yours is the most realistic and, and responsible outlook. Maybe we'll get you back on the show uh, in the new year. Thank you both so much. Congratulations on your interesting piece. Uh, and happy Black Friday to you in the Middle East, in Oslo, and all over the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for watching this Keenon show. I hope you were inspired in some way. I hope you found it interesting. And if you want more of these kinds of shows, you need to subscribe uh, to the podcast uh, on the Apple or, or, or CastBox or Spotify platforms. All major podcast platforms carry the Keen On Show. Or you can also watch live uh, on my Twitter page, uh, my LinkedIn network, uh, or on LitHub's uh, Facebook Live page. Um, I also hope you'll decide to follow me on Substack. Uh, I have uh, a newsletter on Substack in which I develop and expand on a lot of the themes we discuss in the uh, Keen On show. And I hope you'll also follow up with me personally, uh, perhaps uh, to give suggestions for future shows. You might email me at a.keen at me.com. Or you may also email me with suggestions about potential guests. I'm very open, uh, very eager, in fact, to have requests, ideas of, of people with interesting new books and projects, which I need to talk about. So thanks so much again for, for, for watching Keen On. I'm thrilled that you're a member of our community, and I'll look forward to hearing from you in the not-too-distant future.